0: Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. Well, um, every every time we gather, uh, no matter what happens in our gatherings, no matter what the content of the message is or how that message is delivered, uh, even if there's no formal speaker, we've had that um, every Sunday. Uh, I just—I'm always encouraged. I'm always edified. I'm—I'm I'm always encountering the Lord, and I trust the same with you guys. Um, but there does seem to be some—sometimes there's these just unique Sundays where, for whatever reason, I, I find a unique life. And I think the heater came on. Bless the Lord. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh! All right, I'm not going to say anymore. Yay! All right, that. That'll get old fast if so that just goes back and forth. <laughs> um, but, but there does seem to just be some, some unique Sundays where whatever was shared, and again, it's not always have to be just from a pulpit. It just could be what comes through worship, or you just sense like that's what the Spirit is a- a- authoring faith for. It just really sticks. There's a unique life on it. And I really felt what we started to touch on last week that there was a unique grace on it, Uh, and and honestly, a lot of it was even confirmed by just the conversation I've had throughout the week, where there were so many people, including myself, really stirred by what God was highlighting to us. So I felt led to spend one more Sunday on really essentially communicating the same reality, but just from different scriptures. I feel the Lord's going to do a very similar thing that he did last week, and there's something building here. Uh, And so I'll give a a quick, quick recap, and then we'll... um, We'll jump into some new verses for, for this morning, but if you weren't here, especially you want to listen. If not, this is a re- just a fresh reminder, um, but a few weeks ago, the Lord led us in a service on taking back what the enemy has stolen. Uh, we didn't even get to, to speak a message. It was just right like from the throne, and we just opened up a mic, and we were declaring what we felt like God was doing in, the, in this hour, what, what we're taking back. And, uh, and I was deeply stirred by that as many others. And the thing I feel the Lord has been speaking to me is that it wasn't just a service, it was a season, if you would. We use that language for a season where uh, it was more than just a one-time thing, but we're in a season where we're taking back what the enemy has stolen. And there's a lot of ways that can happen. I feel like there's two probably dominant sides to that coin. One is you actually go and forcefully take. Like the, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it. The violent take it by force. Um, and we may get into that next week, where there's a real place to go and destroy the works of the enemy, and that's what Jesus commissioned us to do. But then there's another side of the coin that we highlighted last week that we're going to stay on today, which is uh, about standing firm with a confidence in your heart that God is absolutely sovereign over your life, and that no matter what you walk through, what you have been through, what you are going through, there's a confidence that that God in His goodness and sovereignty is working all things together for good in your life. (laughs) Isn't that glorious news? (laughs) That there's not one single thing that is wasted or out of the eye of God, that He has seen it all. God is not just wise, He is eternally wise. Meaning, I'm going to show this again, meaning God is not just coming up with things on the fly as your life is unfolding. That would still be amazing, but it's even better than that. He's eternally wise, which means from the beginning He has seen every single day of yours. Do you know that means He's seen every stupid choice we make? <laughs> he has seen our rebellion. He has seen the good moments. He has seen the bad moments. And when we give our yes to Him as a child of God, we have the confidence that God is folding and grafting in every single aspect of our life for good. Yeah. Somehow He's going to use it for good. And that's the, 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 the hope that we have as children of God. <laughs> even when evil seems to be doing us worse. So I believe the Lord is establishing a Romans eight twenty eight principle in our heart. That's what we opened up with last week. God is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what's the good? The good, again, is he's refining you into the image of his son. So you have the confidence that no matter what has happened, he's making you look more like Jesus. <laughs> And the, the, uh, probably the ultimate thing is that God is working all things for good and that he's causing all things to bring glory to Jesus through your life. Now, in the natural, anyone who makes their life about bringing glory to themselves, we would say that, is, that seems kind of selfish. <laughs> if I were to say my whole life purpose is to bring glory to myself, that's pretty selfish. How is God, who is so radically generous, how is all things for his glory, how is that an act of his generosity? And the reason why is because... God has created us to be most satisfied when he's most glorified. So by God actually working all things in our life for his glory, he's actually creating uh, opportunities in our life for our hearts to be most satisfied. When we live for self, it's very empty. But when we live for the glory of Jesus, our hearts come alive. So He's right now he's causing not some things, all things. And that means, and what we started to tap in, just stay with me. We're about to to go... uh, into some new verses here (laughs) but all things mean not just the positive but what appears to be negative in your life all things mean not just the pleasurable but also the painful (laughs) all things being worked together and i don't know about you but it's really easy in the positive pleasurable things to see god working but when something seems really painful i'm like where in the world is god (laughs) And I'm not just talking about like having like an off day, but some of you have walked through extremely painful things that have caused real hardship and real heartache in your life. And I believe God wants to inf- like set your heart ablaze with hope. Cuz I don't want us just to know that God's doing something cuz sometimes we can cro- quote Romans 8:28 but be miserable in the process. <laughs> I know that's me like I know he's working all things for good, but I'm bitter. I'm I'm complaining. I'm like frustrated at the person who maybe has offended me. I'm frustrated at God. What are you doing? I believe what we're talking about can fill you with joy and hope in the process. Like the summary of what we're saying is that even when it feels like the enemy has an upper hand, Romans eight twenty eight tells us he never does. When he thinks like he has an upper hand, God is saying, watch how I'm working this out in your life for good. I don't know about you, but that's just glorious. <laughs> so, uh, so last thing, and then we're going to look at Proverbs uh, 16. Because I want you to capture the, like, the ultimate picture of Romans 8.28 is the cross. And what we established, and we're going to see this again in different ways, is that all things are made for, do you remember what we said? What are all things made for? Good, but the glory of Jesus. All of creation is to glorify Jesus. So what is the essence of evil? It is anything and everything opposed to that display of glory. So all things are made to glorify Jesus, and evil seeks out to thwart the display of that glory. So what's so fascinating is that at the cross, when evil did its worst, and hell was given full range to unleash all of its resources on the Son of Man to do what? To destroy the glory of Jesus. The only thing evil and darkness and sin could accomplish is the greatest display of God's glory ever seen before. The very glory they tried to destroy actually was put on the grandest stage we've ever seen. And it is the same truth in your life. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 4. Oh, we're going to see some beautiful things today. (laughs) So just to kind of confirm what I said, look at Proverbs 16, 4. It says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That's amazing. (laughs) The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. What this tells us is that God... God has purpose for everything that happens, which means if he permits anything, it's not because he wasn't able to stop it. It's because in his infinite wisdom, he's working something out for a glorious purpose. God does not simply overcome evil. God causes evil to serve his purposes. He's not just overcoming evil in your life. He's so, so much bigger and better than that. He's causing it to serve his purpose in your life. And God can do what Proverbs 16.4 says, while still maintaining his holiness. So consider this, this is amazing. God can work through evil, sin, the brokenness of the world while still maintaining his holiness and still preserving responsibility of man for his choices. (laughs) He's able to work through all of this and still bring about plans and purposes through the most broken of things. The biblical pattern shows that when evil does its worst and produces even the most spectacular of sins, and we'll look at some today, that these things never nullify God's purposes. Again, they are always used to serve God's purpose of redemption. God is never caught off guard by evil. He's never caught off guard by sin. He's not scared of it. He's never revamping his plans on the fly. I, I used to probably read Romans 8.28 this way, that when bad things happen in your life, when evil happens, even when there's your own sin in your life, God now on the fly is responding and somehow he's going to work it out from that point forward to be good. Now that is nice, but it's far better than that. What it's actually saying is that before it's ever happened, he saw it and already rolled it into the plan of your life. That's how sovereign and good he is. And to prove that, think about this. Think about when sin and evil first entered the world at the fall of humanity. Romans 5, 12 says sin entered through one man. Do you know that sin wasn't part of creation? Sin's an intruder. It had to come in. God, why did you permit it? Why didn't you stop it right from the beginning? What, like, I just imagine the enemy saying, got him. <laughs> right away, you created everything, and then right away, sin enters in, got him. Uh-uh. Because you know what? Romans uh, Revelation 13.8 says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, check this out. It gets even better. 2 Timothy 1.9 says you were saved And called to a holy calling, not according to your works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was established in Christ before the ages. Saving grace was established and purposed towards your life before the ages. Meaning before evil or sin ever touched this world, God had already established saving grace over your life. To go even further, Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be presented holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption, and it's all for the glorious praise of God. So saving grace, adoption, and Christ crucified happened before the world ever ever came into existence and before sin and evil ever came in, which means when sin enters in, God is not like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? He says, I'm going to use all of this to further glorify my son and accomplish my purposes. Which means when evil and things happen in your life and you say, what's going on? God is not caught off guard. He's saying, I've already counted this and watch how I'm going to use it to do something incredible through your life. Amen. Amen? (laughs) All right, so let's go to Colossians 2. And so what I want to do for the few minutes we have here, I want to, I'm going to move some things around. I'm going to share Colossians 2. And, uh, and then we're going to jump into one Old Testament story that is so incredible and highlights what I'm saying here today. Amen? All right. Get ready for your hearts to be encouraged this morning once again. <laughs> I just love it. I, I guess there was parts where I felt like, I, I wanted this to be clear. What I mean by God's never caught off guard or, or kept playing catch-up Because what that can do is, is create a belief that for a season, the enemy does have an upper hand, but God will somehow come in and make it work for good. He never does, guys. He never does. So no matter what you're facing, God is so in control of your life right now. So let's look at Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15. Everyone there? All right, I ultimately want to get to verse 15, so... I'm going to get to that, share it, and then we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit. But let's pick it up in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, And you, now let's make that personal, me and you who were dead in your trespasses, so there was a time where we were dead in our sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So God, who, we were dead, but God, it's his good pleasure to make us alive with Christ. How? By having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. You've been forgiven of everything. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There was a debt that stood against us, meaning it was actually hostile, some translations say. It was demanding a payment, saying, well, the wages of sin is death. How did he cancel this debt? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15, here's the key for us this morning. It says, he disarmed The rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now, who are the rulers and authorities? Anytime Paul writes about rulers and authorities, he's specifically speaking about supernatural beings, but more specific than that, he's talking about demonic falling beings. So, what Paul is highlighting here is that at the cross, Satan and the entirety of his demonic host were openly shamed by being disarmed. And Christ at the cross triumphed over them. What does it mean that they were openly shamed? Shame means to make a public display of, to make a public spectacle of, to make a show of. To be shamed means to be disgraced or humiliated. So what this is saying is that at the cross, if you can picture this, at the cross of Christ the cross of Jesus created an arena where all of the cosmos took a seat to look on. And as they looked on, they saw in this arena, once again, hell being able to do its worst. Evil, sin, the kingdom of darkness was, was able to do whatever it wanted to the Son of Man. And when it, uh, it unleashed the fullness of its power and authority, the only thing that happened is it actually created a scene for it to be openly shamed. The only thing that happened When evil did its worst is God used it to actually humiliate the evil itself. He made a public spectacle of this. My friends, I believe that we are in an open shaming season. And I believe that there are things that you have not seen the invisible hand of God working. You have wondered, why is this happening? God, why is this not going away? But in a moment, you are going to see like what happened at the cross, where everything that was worked against you is going to be turned on its head, and the enemy will be openly shamed through your life, and Christ will be most glorified. What what does it mean that, that he was openly shamed? It means the whole plan was turned on himself. What it means is that everything Satan's plan tried to accomplish, it actually wound up destroying. <laughs> everything it set out to destroy, if I say it the other way, everything Satan's plan set out to destroy, ended up accomplishing. Have you ever read in the scriptures where it speaks in the Psalms or Proverbs about how uh, the, the wicked or the enemy sets a trap for the righteous? But what happens in the end? It only ensnares itself. <laughs> this is the open shaming season I see happening. I see you're going to see with your own eyes how God was sovereignly working in your life and setting a trap for the enemy. And what it's going to do is it's actually going to lead to moments of you loving and adoring and cherishing Christ in a way that if it never happened, you would have not done. It's going to actually do something in your heart and make you more like Jesus that would have never happened if it didn't happen. It's going to create a stage in your life for him to be most glorified if it never happened, where we'll actually be able to rejoice and be thankful over what the Lord has permitted to touch our lives. This is this is amazing. How how is was the, the powers of darkness openly shamed at the cross? It says they were disarmed. Which means at the cross, Satan and his dominions, they were disarmed. Which means they were disabled or dethroned. Or more specifically, what it means is they were disrobed. That's actually what the word means. It means to strip. What were they stripped of? Their power and authority. Now, you want to know what's so amazing? Is that at the cross of Christ, in Roman crucifixion, we, um, we know it was a measure of extreme torture. But one thing we, we don't always understand is, is another side. That, when we, let me put this, when we see pictures of Jesus crucified, portraits, statues, and he's still on the cross, we always portray him with a loincloth on. Literally, it's, it's covering his, his most modest parts, if you would. Why do we do that? We're trying to preserve some form of dignity for the Son of Man. But when you were crucified in Roman crucifixion, it was not just extreme torture, it was a means of, of extreme humiliation. They would actually strip you naked before they put you on the cross, which means almost 100% when Jesus was crucified, he was stripped naked. Now for us, that still may not hit us the same way because we live in a culture so desensitized to nudity, but in first century culture, there was nothing more shameful than to be openly exposed before your brethren. So think about this. Jesus on the cross is stripped to be shamed and humiliated, but what the kingdom of darkness did not recognize is that as they were stripping him to shame him, he was actually stripping them of their power and authority. Think about the power of Jesus, where he says, do your worst, they strip him to humiliate, and in that act, he's actually stripping them of everything that they have. The, The arena that's set at the cross is you can do The kingdom of darkness was given all power and authority, all that they had to do, again, do their worst. And when they executed the fullness of their authority, the only thing they could do was commit an act that stripped them of that authority. The Lord is working this out in our lives right now, setting a stage for Jesus to be glorified. Specifically, just so you see this, because I think this is so amazing, how was the how is the enemy openly shamed? Look at verse 13. How is he disarmed? Two ways. It says we were once dead and we were once in debt. And both of these things were removed from our lives at the cross. And look at verse 13. Again, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So the first thing that happened, that the way that his whole plan turned on himself, is that... He made a way for those that were dead to be made alive. <laughs> and in Hebrews, it makes a really amazing statement. It says that, do you know that who held the power of death prior to the cross? Satan. And it says in Hebrews 2 that through death, Jesus destroyed the one that had the power of death. Yeah. Revelation 1, 17, 18, when John encounters Jesus, the resurrected Christ, he says, I fell as if I was dead Jesus puts his right hand on him and says, Do not be afraid. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. How do he get the keys? He just said it. I was dead, but now I'm alive. In other words, it was through death that he was given the power over death. So when Satan put the Son of Man to death, he was actually losing his power over death in that place. The whole thing was reversed on him, and he made a way for captives to be set free. <laughs> And then the second thing, it says that we were in debt, but now that debt has been canceled. Do you know what Satan's primary weapon is? Accusation. (laughs) And specifically, it says he uses the record of debt or the written code, which I really believe refers to the law. I believe Satan actually uses the law and says, Revelation 12, says he stands before the throne of God, accusing the brethren day and night. Now, he's been cast out from that place, but he had a place where he was accusing day and night, and I believe his accusation was, your holy law says sin requires death. They belong to be with me. But by putting the Son of Man to death, what Satan did not realize is that he was making a way for the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled. He was making a way for that debt to be paid so that all those who were in debt could be forgiven. (laughs) The whole thing was turned on his head, and that's why Corinthians says if he understood the wisdom of God, he wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Let me share one other thing in this passage, and then we're going to jump to an Old Testament story. I want you to go to chapter 1 for a sec. And specifically, I want to read one verse here. I'm in Colossians 1, and I never saw this before. And this, I believe, will deeply encourage your heart, and it really confirms some things we shared last week. Um, Verse 15 to 20 is widely considered one of the greatest passages ever describing the glories of Christ. I encourage you to commit this to memory. But I'm going to highlight verse 16 especially. When describing this cosmic king who's, who's Lord over original and new creation, Paul says this in verse 16. For by him, meaning by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him so again what does this mean everything was made for christ every single person whether in heaven on earth every being everything visible and invisible has one ultimate purpose to display the greatness of christ and to magnify his glory now, Paul, after saying all things, and then saying whether heaven and earth, visible or invisible, he could have listed out a thousands of different things. But what does Paul specifically mention after the all things that have been made by him, through him, and for him? Let's read it again. For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, now listen, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers and authorities. Now, what was openly shamed in Colossians 2? Rulers and authorities. And isn't that interesting? What do we now know of what Paul says when he refers to dominions, rulers, powers, authorities, rulers, all of those things? What is Paul always mentioning? He's always mentioning spiritual beings, but specifically fallen, demonic, spiritual beings. They say, well, hold on, hold on. God made something that was evil and demonic? No, 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 no. Listen carefully. God did not create anything evil. He did not cause it to be evil. But what this is saying is God created something knowing it would actually rebel against him hello, we're all here today, right? (laughs) God created something, dominions, thrones, rulers, and authorities. He created these things knowing very well these rulers and authorities would one day rebel against him. He did not cause this rebellion, but he permitted it. The question is, God, why would you ever create something knowing this? And once again, we come back to the to the simple but life-changing answer that God, in His infinite wisdom, saw a Colossians 2:15 moment coming. In other words, God could have <laughs> breathed and the rebellion was over. But God said, "If I permit this, I see a day coming where there's actually going to be an act that is displayed that will that will put on uh, that will that will put on display to all the world the full array of my Son's glories." And so it is with you. If there is something, I believe what God wants us to be courage with by this is God wants to infuse courage in your heart. That there is something that God has not removed immediately from your life. There is only one reason why. He has permitted it because he sees a Colossians 2.15 moment coming. The only reason why God has permitted something is he says there is a day coming when I'm going to let this thing come to a head and then I'm going to openly shame it and watch how Jesus is so glorified through your life. You can, you can be confident right now. Like, we contend. We pray for breakthrough. There, there's a place to that. But if that hasn't, if nothing's happened, we say, Lord, I'm going to hold with joy and hope, knowing at some point, this thing you permitted is going to be turned back on itself. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so listen, this just removes, like, anything we're walking through right now, there's a joyful anticipation for the Colossians 2.15 moment. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. This is how good God is. Uh, last thing I, I want to share in this actually to encourage you is that Colossians 2.15, all that we shared, the enemy being openly shamed, disarmed, everything being turned back on himself, if you and I were at the cross, do you know what we would see? None of that. In other words, everything I just shared, if me and you could go back 2,000 so years and be there when Jesus was being crucified, we wouldn't see a single thing that Paul is saying right now. The only thing we would see with our natural eyes, actually, I was just reading through the Gospel of Luke. It was, honestly, my heart was, was saddened by the reality of in the natural, all these people around, he, cruci- he gets cruci- crucified, he breathes his last breath, and then many walk away tearing their clothes, saying it's blasphemy. Others stand on watching, and I just imagine the eerie silence as darkness comes over the land. And the winds blow over the Calvary Hill. And you hear the creaking of the cross going back and forth. And all you see is the bloodied body of Jesus. And in the natural, we would say, that's it. But if our eyes could be opened up to the invisible hand of God, we would see in that moment, the powers of darkness were being shamed. That the powers of darkness were being stripped. That the kingdom of darkness was being cast out of its place of accusation. And I want you to know that there may be things you're walking through, and you look with natural eyes and see where is the hand of God right now. But, oh, if our eyes could be opened up to see God, we would see how the Lord is doing an incredible work through that. Amen? All right, for, uh, for sake of time, I'm, I'm going to just share one story with you. If you could come with me to the book of Esther. The Book of Esther in the Old Testament. I really want you guys to, uh, if you if you can, track with me as turn turn there. I want to share this, and then we'll we'll open it up to have some time to, to pray over people for whatever you may be going through. Uh, Col- um, Book of Esther, I believe, is one of the most incredible examples of a Colossians two fifteen. It's like Esther puts flesh and bones on Colossians 2.15, the open shaming. How many of you have ever read the book of Esther? <laughs> it's unbelievable. I really say, like, buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> because what's about to happen is everything we just, we just shared, everything the, the enemy meant for evil gets turned right back on his head. Are you, are you guys, you guys following me on this? Like, this is the word of God. It's not just wishful, hopeful thinking. God is going to take what seems to be your most painful, tragic things, and it's going to be moments of absolute, like, it'll be moments, as we're going to see of moments of celebration. God's going to create memorials out of places that seem like it was places of sorrow. Yeah. That's what happens. That's how good our God is. They will be memorials. Well, you will say, God, I never want to forget this, because it always fuels my heart with praise towards you. So everyone come in the book of Esther. What time do we have right now? 11.38. 11:38. Awesome. All right. So this is one of the most exciting but curious books. And here's what I'm going to attempt to do. I'm going to summarize this book in like a minute. No, a little bit longer than that, but pretty quick. Uh, and I, as we get towards the like midway point, I'm going to start highlighting scriptures. But it is absolutely critical that you guys track with me. Because every detail I'm going to share, I've asked God, like, give me wisdom to get just the heart of what's happening. And everything I'm sharing is not just to be nice, nice things to share. We're going to see how everything that's mentioned is going to get flipped around and be used for God's glory and for the promotion of God's people, all right? So if you want, you can go to chapter 4. We'll, we'll, that's where I'll first read. But I'm going I'm to summarize this first. Here's the background, all right? I'll turn the 4 as well. Here's, here's the background. Esther is set about a hundred years after Babylonian captivity. Okay, so this is where Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken captive to Babylon. This is a hundred years later. Now at this point, some Jews have returned, like Ezra, Nehemiah, those books. But many Jews have actually remained in the land that they were taken captive. They're free now in, in many respects. And so what you have is you have a large Jewish community living in the capital of Persia, known as Susa. Okay. Now, there are four main characters in the book of Esther. All right, we'll have a, a little feedback. Does anyone know who are the two, two first characters? Two, who are the two main characters? Does anyone know? Mordecai, Haman, Esther, and the king of Persia. So you've got two Jews, Mordecai and Esther, and then the other two main characters is the king of Persia and one of his officials by the name of Haman. Now, what makes this book so fascinating and so interesting is that God's name is never mentioned once. <laughs> now, how can you have a book in the Bible that's all about God and God's name not ever mentioned? It's actually a brilliant technique by the author to cause us to look with intent for the activity of God through this story. He purposely does not write his name so that we are forced to look for the signs of God's invisible hand throughout it, of which we will see it everywhere. And this is deeply encouraging for us because there are times where we go through life saying, God, where are you through this? And go, God invites us to say, look for my hand. Don't just chalk it up to that I'm there. Look, I invite you to be hungry to look for it. And you will see his fingerprints everywhere. <laughs> and his fingerprints wash out the fingerprints of what the enemy's doing. All right, all right so here's where, here's where we start. One and two, chapters one and two, here's, here's like the framework. Listen, listen carefully. This book begins with two banquets held by the king of Persia. 187 days, these two banquets total up. First, 180 days. The second banquet is seven days. The purpose of these banquets are to display the greatness of the king of Persia. Well, when they get to the final day, the 187th day, the the king of Persia, who's pictured as kind of a drunken pushover, (laughs) he gets very drunk. And he decides to summon his wife, Queen Vashti. And he wants to show her off at the banquet because she's very beautiful. He refuses, She refuses to come. So the king is filled with rage. And he removes her as queen. And the stage is now set that he must go out and look for another queen. So what does he do? He sends out his officials throughout the kingdom of Persia looking for the most beautiful virgins. Well, in that search, they bring back many women. This would have been something actually would happen historically. One of the women that are brought back is Esther, a Jewish woman. who He does not recognize as Jewish yet. So he brings her in, and essentially, they go on a kind of a beauty pageant. It's this year-long process that was actually pretty gruesome, where they would have to go through certain cosmetic treatments before they could go before the king. And after a year, one by one, each of these women would present themselves before the king of Persia. And when Esther went before her, the, the king was undone by her beauty and says, that's the queen right there. She becomes now the queen of Persia. (laughs) Now what's amazing is that during this time, Mordecai, remember Esther is is Mordecai's niece, he would go to the king's gate regularly to talk with Esther. And one day while he was at the king's gate, he overheard two officials plotting the death of the king of Persia. So, So Mordecai tells Esther to tell the king. The king finds out, he investigates it, finds it to be true, removes these men, and then it makes an interesting statement. It says he takes his book of Chronicles, which is his, like his, his record of his being a king, and he has it recorded, what Mordecai did for him. And it ends. And you say, that, that's it? Kind of some random stories. No, no, no. God is setting a glorious stage through all of this. All right? So we move into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Haman is introduced. Haman is this evil uh, official that really just personifies, I believe, like kingdom of darkness. And he's put basically as the right hand of of the king of Persia. And one of the things the king does is he issues a decree that everyone has to bow and worship Haman when Haman comes around. So Haman happens to enter the king's gate, which who's there? Mordecai, because he would speak with Esther. And as Haman enters, all the officials bow except for Mordecai. Haman sees this, and he's filled with fury and rage. And he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai. But then he finds out Mordecai's Jewish and he says, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people. Think about it, this is like, how many of you have had some bad days? <laughs> okay, because like if God can work through this, he can work through our lives. So now Haman says, I have a plot. I'm going to kill Mordecai, but I'm actually going to wipe out the nation of the Jews. Here's what he does he then goes on his own and he begins to devise a plot. It says he takes dice, casts lots to figure out which day he will annihilate the Jews. Do you know what casting lot's the name is? The, the Persian word is pur, P-U-R. It's very interesting because you're going to see what happens on the other side of this, what this celebration will be called in the end. So he casts lot. Pure means the casting of Haman's lot, uh, Haman's dice. Haman discovers the day. It's 11 months pro- uh, after the day that he's on. He goes before the king and says, here's my plan. There's a people that live amongst you that do not care about you, They rebel against your laws. I think we should wipe out all of them. He says, women, children, everyone. It's almost like the king's on the fence and he says, I'll put a lot of money in your treasury. And the king says, done, do it. He issues letters that get sent out to the entire kingdom of Persia. The Jews find out about it and they enter into a time of weeping, mourning, fasting. Haman, I mean, Mordecai is in sackcloth. Esther has no idea, but through their interaction, she finds out. And I want to read in chapter 4, very briefly, the interaction between Mordecai and Esther as Esther is finding out about this plot to annihilate the Jews. I'm in verse 13. I just want to share this because it's such a powerful section. I'm in, again, Esther chapter 4, verse 13. This is where Mordecai and Esther devise a plan. Essentially, you're going to ask the king to reverse this decree. And in verse 13, it says, Then Mordecai told them. There was actually people going back and forth between them and Esther. as like middlemen to, to their conversation. It says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's an amazing statement. This, this really highlights God's desire for partners. He says, Esther, if you don't step up, God will do it another way, but you'll miss out on it. God will deliver. He'll still do it, but you'll, be missed, you'll miss out on being used. That is like a powerful statement for us to say yes to the call of God. And then he says, but you and your father's house will perish. And this is one of the famous lines. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying, perhaps even you've become queen for such a time as this. And then verse 15, then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai. She agrees. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a feast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And another famous line she says and if i perish i perish man that's a bold woman right there why because she says even though it's against the law what she was saying is according to persian law no one could approach the king without being requested the only way you could be spared of death is if the king gave his scepter to you when you stepped in she recognized if i don't get that i will die but she says nevertheless if i perish i perish so what happens chapter 5 she goes before the king much to her, I'm sure relief. The king gives her the scepter. She comes in. The king says, "What do you want, my queen? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom." And her request is, "I want to have two, basically two banquets with you. Would you come to a banquet, you and Haman?" And he says, "Most certainly." They come to the banquet, and Haman gets very drunk. Which I think is actually all the way God worked through this because his guard comes down. And get ready, this is where everything's about to switch, because Haman leaves this banquet drunk, and he comes out. It says, "Marry on wine." And he comes to the, uh, the king's gate and he sees Mordecai there again. And he begins to think to himself, I am a man that has an abundance of wealth, riches, power, status. But as long as this man is alive, I will never be happy. And so that night he says, that's it. I'm going to take out Mordecai. And it says he has his officials erect a large pole, a gallow, to hang Mordecai on. Not hanging like by the neck, they would, in the Persians, they would impale you on this, and they would hang, okay? So this is what's happening that night. Haman says, I'm going to impale him the next morning, and I'm going to take him out. And are you ready for what happens? The entire story is about to shift. Again, have any of you had a threat of your people being wiped out and being impaled the next morning? (laughs) Okay, so if God can work through this, God can work through your life. Are you ready? This is so good. I've said all this because I want you to see the power of what's about to happen. Verse 1 of chapter 6. You guys there? Esther 6, verse 1. It says, On that night. Okay, stop. What night? The night that Haman is having the gallows built to impale Mordecai. On that night, look what happens. The king could not sleep. I wonder why. (laughs) The king is tossing and turning. He says, I can't sleep. So what does he do? Look what he does. And he gave orders... To bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So the king says, I can't sleep. He says, someone, bring me my chronicles, because nothing will make you fall fast a little bit sleeper than reading through these testimonies. But now, do you remember what I said in the beginning of what was put in the chronicles? Mordecai's act of helping the king be set free from a plot to assassinate him. He can't sleep. He says, bring me the Chronicles. He's sitting there. The officials begin to read it, and all of a sudden it comes to the part of the story where this man Mordecai spared his life, and he says, wait, stop. He says, Mordecai, he says, have we done anything to honor this man? <laughs> have we done anything to bless this man? And the officials say, no, we have done nothing. So <laughs> oh, it's so good. It, like, makes me giddy to see how God works these things out. <laughs> look at, so, just you see, look at verse 3. And the king said... What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai? He says, wait, what have we done for this man? And then it says, the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Ready? Verse 4, and the king said, who is in the court? So it's morning time. Ready? Who's coming in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. So here's the king saying, wait a minute, what's that? What's that? Mordecai, what have we done to honor and bless him? As he's saying that, it's morning time, and guess who comes in? Here comes Haman coming in. Coming in with the request to have Mordecai hanged. The very one that the king is now asking, how should we bless him? But it gets even better than this. Where are we? Verse 6. So Haman came in, ready? Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, oh, the king says to Haman now, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He says to him, Haman, I want to ask you something. You're one of my trust officials. What should we do for the man that the king loves and honors? And look what Haman says to himself. It's the second part of verse 6. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So he has this internal dialogue, and he says, oh, the king wants to honor someone? He must be talking about me. For who would the king want to honor more than me? Who does the king delight more than me? So Haman's about to respond and give the most lavish request about what you should do for a man that the king honors and delights, having no idea that he's about to promote the very man that he wanted to kill. So look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, Oh, you can only imagine this. For the man who the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought which the king has worn guys no one could put on the king's robes he knows the request he's making you would never dare to make these requests in the natural he says let him put on your robes and the horse that the king has ridden do you remember what we said about jesus about the uh donkey he says find me one who has no one no one has ridden it because it was the law that no one could ride the horse or the donkey of the king again i want you to see he's making such lavish requests He's saying, let him take your horse and ride it. (laughs) And then he says, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Verse 9, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man. Don't even let him dress himself. (laughs) Let others come around and dress him, who the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. And then verse 10 says, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Oh, and it gets even better. He says, leave nothing out that you mentioned. Do everything that you said. Ready for verse 11? So Haman, Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before the, the people, thus it shall be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Can you imagine this? The very man that this, this guy wanted to kill, he's now leading on the king's horse, shouting out to the people, look at what happens when the king loves this a person. <laughs> Everything was flipped on his head. The very thing the enemy meant to do to destroy him actually wanted up promoting him. Guys, the, 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 the take home for us in this is that there are things that the enemy tries to do, and again, I don't try to be like overly enemy, but I want you to see God's hand because I want you to just be locked into God, that when these things come, what he thought would destroy you, he has no idea. He's setting you up for your divine callings. He's setting you up for things that God has promised. Like there are times when things happen in my life and I'm like, oh my goodness, God, this is going to get in your plan, the way you're planning. And God's I say, no, I've already seen this, and I'm going to use this to actually bring about the plans and purposes I have for you. Can we just finish this out? Because it gets even better. So Haman is not only set up now. It says he goes to his room, and he is just like undone. The man he wanted to kill, he's now led around the city, blessing and honoring and praising. But it gets even worse for Haman. Now he's just having a really bad day. Because now the second banquet comes, that Esther had. And now finally she makes her request. And she says, do you know that there's someone who despises me and my people and wants to wipe them out? And the king begins to burn with anger because he loves the queen and says, who is it? And she says, it's Haman. (laughs) And the king then asks, he says, what are we going to do to Haman? And look at verse 9 and 10. One of the officials gives the king an idea. I'm in chapter 7, verse 9. It says, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said moreover the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose words saved the king is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high so the king is saying what are we going to do to Haman one of the officials say well do you know that he built this huge gallow to actually kill Mordecai and the king says put Haman on it <laughs> so the very gallow that Haman built to destroy Mordecai he's actually impaled on himself now This is Colossians 2.15, guys. Everything the enemy meant for evil was flipped on himself, and he wound up destroying himself in the process. But it gets even better. (laughs) There's only a few chapters left, so I promise we're only done here. Haman's, Haman's been impaled. But now the question is, Haman's gone, but there's still an issue. There's still a decree that's been issued to annihilate the Jews on a certain day. So Mordecai and Esther, once again... Devise a plan and say, all right, it's time for you to reveal that you're a Jew and you need to ask for this to be overturned. They go to the king and the king says, listen, as a king, I can't overturn this though. Man, I wasn't thinking about it. That's really good news for us. Do you know that Jesus is a king? (laughs) It's actually a really powerful principle here. What Jesus says can never be overturned. (laughs) Do you know that one of the things the kings would do is they would say, behold, and then they would speak something. And whatever was said, that was it. I don't know why I'm sharing this right now, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Behold, anyone is a new creation, the old is gone and the new is here. Everyone in Christ is a new creation. That's a decree of a king. <laughs> Everything Jesus says, it cannot be overturned. So the king said, I've issued a decree, I can't overturn it. So then he says this, but I have a plan. He says, Why don't you guys issue a new decree that will override this? And so Esther and Mordecai pen a new decree that says, On the day that the Jews were to be annihilated, they are now able to take up arms and master their oppressors. And so the day comes, and the enemies of Israel go out, and as the n- new decree issued, the Jews stand up and fight and completely annihilate the, Jew- uh, the enemies of, of their people. Uh, in fact, it says even Haman's family was wiped out. And I want you to look in chapter 9, verse 22 of the summary of this day. One of the summary statements, chapter 9, verse 22, it says, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them, listen, from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. (laughs) The day that was meant to be sorrow is now a day full of gladness, And the day that was, again, meant to be a day of mourning is now a holiday. (laughs) And what holiday is this? Look just a few verses down, verse 25. I'm going to read verse 25, 26. It says, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his, meaning Haman's evil plan that he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. Everything was returned on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now look at verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Do you know that to this day, there are two days celebrated every year on the Jewish calendar called Purim. (laughs) Purim is just the plural form of the casting of dice. So literally, Haman's dice that were cast to annihilate the Jews... Every year now for two days, the Jews celebrate and they call it the casting of dice. It is such a mockery of what the enemy meant for evil. That what was supposed to be a day of annihilation is now a day of celebration every single year. Only God can take days of mourning and make them festivities now. And so in the end, the way it ends is that Mordecai is not only delivered and spared, he gets raised to the second in command over all of Persia. And it says his greatness and splendor and his favor went on and on and on. And here is the summary for us, is that when the enemy tried to destroy Mordecai, he only promoted him. And when he tried to destroy the Jews, he only created a celebration. He created a holiday. (laughs) When the enemy did his worst, the only thing he could do was create a holiday for the people of God. (laughs) And so the book of Esther, it invites us, To have confidence in the sovereignty of God, that even when you do not see God's hand working, oh, he is working. And no matter how bad things may seem at points, no matter how much it feels like things are out of control, God is turning all things for good in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's have the worship team to come on up. I'm feeling some Haman Mordecai stories here. Praise the Lord. So, what I want to do for those who are gonna would like to remain with us, we'll give uh, some space. I'll have the prayer team come on up. And similar to last week, I just felt one more week to just pray for hearts to be deeply encouraged and to know that grace is exploding over your life. Um, I really felt for those that are maybe in a process that. They feel quite miserable, and I get it. We, we, we're just there, natural. But there's an invitation, I believe, to find joy in whatever we're walking through, to find hope, especially. Uh, that, that's part of the way I feel like we take back. Uh, that's what I'm trying to get at in this, is that there are places where we forcefully take. There are other times where we actually can remain firm with joy and hope. And there's something about that that I just think really irks the kingdom of darkness. <laughs> it's the Psalm 2. Uh, the nations rage and plot against the Lord's anointed but then David says but the Lord is seated on the throne and he laughs at the plans of the enemy and I really believe it's it's like it's a laughter of nothing will prosper that they're trying to do and I believe like like holy laughter comes upon people you ever see that and there's a lot of reasons some of it's just pure delight I, I think sometimes the Lord releases a holy laughter because if we could see it, God's actually strengthening that person to laugh in the face of what seems like the enemy's like, I got you. Yeah. And they're just laughing because they have such confidence in the Lord. So if there's just something that's stirring your heart from this morning, if our prayer team, I'm not exactly sure it was assigned, but if they can come on up and we'll pray over you. And uh, yeah, I just trust grace will abound over your life. So let, let's pray. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. You are truly the God who works all things together for good. God, I'm asking that this would be, a, this altar would be a waterfall of grace, that as individuals step on it, they step under this flow, and that your grace would flow and just begin to flush out wrong thinking. It would flush out just like the gook in our heart, oh God, of unbelief and fear and and all those tactics of the enemy. I just pray the waterfall of grace would flush it out. I thank you, Lord, that everything we've shared today, they're not just nice stories. You are the same today. And I thank you, God, that we're in a season of seeing open shaming taking place. I thank you, Lord, that we're gonna see, we're gonna see the Hamans fall. I thank you, Lord, that we're gonna see the enemy fall again, God. We're going to see his, his mouth silence once again. We're going to see that, that everything he thought would bring about our demise, that actually he was setting divine promotions, and he was actually pushing us into the places that you have always called us. Thank you, God, that you are sovereign. Thank you that you're never caught off guard. Thank you that you're never playing catch up in our life. Thank you, God, that you're always on the advance. God, thank you that you are so good that you're working all things right now for good in our lives. Lord, would you just release a confidence in our heart? I pray hearts would just bubble up with joy and hope this morning. We just speak again against the discouragement to go in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, that when it feels like evil has an upper hand, we find out he never does. He never does. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we are a victorious people. Thank you that we are raised and seated with you, Lord. So, Lord, would you make our cry a simple one, Lord? Be glorified. Whatever we walk through, we ask for it not to just get by, not just to get through, but we say, Lord, let your full work be done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.